Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to the release of our new forum paper entitled From EMD to Milestone C and Beyond, Common Issues that Affect Developmental Programs Transitioning into Production. Now, let's be honest. The Department of Defense, the Air Force, and Congress have been trying out how to deliver dependable forward-leaning capabilities faster and on budget. If you laid out all the acquisition reports end to end, I'm pretty sure you could cover the beltway around DC, if not further. However, there's reason for hope that new efforts currently underway, like the B-21 and GBSD, are trending well in this regard, given recent feedback from a wide variety of sources. Heck, when some of the most cynical voices in Congress are saying positive things about these programs, something must be working. Now, today, we're here to explore these dynamics. Lieutenant General Mark Shackelford, who last served as the military deputy to the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, recently drafted a report looking at some key variables regarding what allowed some programs to succeed while others experienced marked challenges. To be specific, he examined variables around the milestone C marker, the critical transition period from development to production, and identified several common issues that are important for today's leaders to consider as they seek to deliver capabilities on time and on budget. So to further explore these issues, I'm also pleased to welcome with us today Mr. Randy Walden, Director and Program Executive Officer for the Department of the Air Force's Rapid Capabilities Office, and retired Major General Dwyer Dennis, former Program Executive Officer for C3I and Networks. So gentlemen, welcome and thanks very much for joining us. Um, what we'll do is start with a summary of the paper. And just as a note to our audience, please feel free to raise your hand during the uh, uh, presentation uh, anytime, and we'll get to the, your questions on the second half of the hour. So with that, over to you, Shaq. Thank you very much, Dave, and, uh, and thank you very much to the Mitchell Institute for, uh, for taking on this paper. Thanks to Dwyer and the folks at uh, Dayton Aerospace for doing a great deal of research to bring this about. So uh, let's, let's start with the paper. Okay, um, major defense acquisition programs are infamous for failing to deliver new weapon systems on time and on budget. Few studies, uh, and there have been many, analyze performance across many programs. This study attempts to determine systemic issues, identify lessons learned and point to prudent courses of action. So what is Milestone C? Milestone C is the decision to be begin production. It's the, pre the presumed prerequisite for entering low rate initial production, operational test and evaluation and full rate production. In principle, it affirms that we have a stable design that will meet requirements, that system software is mature, that there's no significant manufacturing risk, that cost and schedule are well understood, that production capabilities are ready, sustainment plans, plans in place, and the first production lot is fully funded. In practice, however, significant de development work often occurs during LRIP. 
So we'll focus on these four topics, uh, poor communication and transparency between the government and contractor, unstable requirements or unstable funding, lack of production representative assets and insufficient testing, and poor management decisions that disrupted program stability. It's important to point out that uh, these individual issues are not showstoppers except when conditions truly lead to loss of uh, political support, uh, such as occurred for the A-12, and that's the only example here where the program was outright canceled. This chart shows you where we saw examples in each program. Note that all of the programs entered EMD at or before 2000, which is prior to the Weapon System Acquisition Reform Act of 2009, better buying power, and the more contemporary strategies like uh, mid-tier acquisition and the uh, proliferation of use of, use of uh, other transaction authorities. So communication is key to managing program risks through development and early production. Development of superior or cutting edge performance systems is fundamentally risk prone. Unrealistic assessment of progress and risks or relationships that inhibit problem solving lead to realization of those risks. Government industry should manage risk proactively, which requires accountability and trust. A culture of mistrust or an arm's length relationship does not allow for flexibility to solve problems. And this also applies to prime subrelations. Uh, we saw problems here, uh, particularly on C-17, A-12 and, A and F-22. Requirement definition and cost estimates should, but don't always, lead to a stable program baseline. Requirements added due to evolving threats, bureaucratic wrangling, or goal plating can force expensive redesigns. Role changes or added mission capability affected the B-2, F-22, and F-35. KPP changes affected B-1 and C-17. Funding may be underestimated. Services may redirect funds or Congress may withhold funds. This was important for A-12, C-17, and F-22. Unstable requirements and funding can drive major cost and schedule growth, for instance, on the B-1 and F-22. And this often leads to reduced procurement quantities that then increase unit cost, affecting B1, B2, F22, and C17. Transition from EMD to production also coincides with early operational testing. Real-world testing often reveals problems missed in the lab or technologies that work fine independently but fail as part of an integrated system. Examples are the avionics for both F-22 and F-35, uh, or the refueling boom or the remote visual system for the KC-46. Unavailability of representative test aircraft can delay important testing, which can lead to issues only being discovered in early production aircraft. Uh, for instance, the F-22 had two lots of what they call production representative test vehicles, which though possibly delivered on time, were delivered with travel work that took up to a year to resolve before the aircraft became productive. C-17 suffered from late deliveries that affected flight test efficiency. Schedule margin for fully integrated flight testing before milestone C is often short and sometimes non-existent. Pressure to begin initial production sometimes before flight testing begins also affected programs such as the B-1 and the C-17 
that enter, entered LRIP before first flight. Early production aircraft often require extensive retrofits and fixes, which consume additional time and money, example, F-35. The prime contractor has wide flexibility to make decisions on locations, suppliers, and leadership. Poor choices can result in increased costs and schedule delays. Integrating the many parts of a complex combat aircraft requires good management from both the prime and the government. Poor management decisions often impact program stability, which tends to have unintended consequences. Sometimes decisions that make sense for short-term financial political reasons often have impacts downstream that outweigh their benefits. For example, uh, the implementation of total quality management had a profound effect on the beginning of the C-17 program. Mistaken assumptions about feasibility, risk and program structure and pursuit of progress payments affected A-12. The B-2 began manufacturing before design was complete and F-22 underestimated cost and schedule and suffered from a very aggressive bid by the prime contractor. But it's not just industry, the government management often suffers from a lack of effective oversight. For instance, uh, C-17 was put on ice almost immediately after contract award, then underestimated avionics, flight controls, and software. A-12 had poor oversight associated with classification, and F-22 suffered from unrealistic costs and schedule, distributed work share, and later on an EMD, a hands-off approach. Lack of flexibility compounds these management problems. Not being able to recover from a misstep or negotiate a solution to an unexpected challenge can lead government or contractor to double down on approaches with negative outcomes. One possible approach to deal with this is something called active contract management, a uh, strategy developed by Harvard government labs. This is a framework for using data to adapt management processes to achieve program baselines. The government must own technical, the, the technical baseline and be able to understand and assess program data. The government should make contract changes to its contract or program approach as needed. Communication should be open and frequent to avoid surprises and miscues. The goal is to build trust and partnership backed up by data-informed accountability. Trust enables all sides to focus on delivering baseline capability on time and on schedule. So the one outlier here was the FA-18 ENF. How, how did this program manage to avoid these problems? Well, they had good relationship between government and contractor based on their prior program with the earlier Hornet. They used integrated product teams and made good use of programmatic management data. They strictly controlled requirements. They had stable funding, having only two minor reductions over 12 years. They had seven test aircraft, ample time to test, a logical work share arrangement, and substantial management reserve. Of course, we got to caveat this with the fact that the FA-18EF was not a clean sheet design, but rather an evolution of the, the earlier Hornet. But that said, there are some fairly substantial differences between the Hornet and Super Hornet designs that affected their, uh, their process. So considerations for future programs, uh, establish government contractor trust and good communications early, then keep it as circumstances change, maintain stable requirements and predictable funding, 
ensure sufficient production representative test assets are available and sufficient time is available to conduct testing. The government and contractor need strong experienced management teams and active contract management can foster a collaborative and data informed management culture. Future acquisition programs can use these principles to achieve balance between speed, capability, and affordability. Programs need to balance these considerations to deliver the capabilities warfighters need and customers expect in a sustainable way. And programs are more likely to achieve cost and schedule objectives if they take a realistic approach to inherent risks of acquisition rather than focusing on those associated with one dimension like speed or fielding or cost control. Back to you, Dave. Well, look, thanks very much, Shaq, for that uh, overview. Uh, and uh, Dwyer, thanks again for being here. Uh, let me offer you the opportunity to, uh, to say a couple words, uh, if you will, about uh, what you just heard. So over to you. You bet. Uh, thanks, Dave. Um, first, I, I just want to say it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm excited to see that this paper is being released by the Mitchell Institute. And of course, I'm, a, I'm a, a very honored to, to be here to represent the Dayton Aerospace uh, uh, Incorporated uh, team that provided a significant portion uh, of the underlying research for the paper. Uh, as you probably all know, DAI is a disabled veteran small business. Uh, we've been providing uh, aerospace consultation for over uh, 37 years now. Then we're comprised of uh, and this is important, I think, to this research, uh, comprised of, uh, you know, former senior level military, civilian and industry uh, subject matter experts, really across all the functional areas uh, that span the system life cycle. Um, this team in particular was led by uh, Mr. Bill Stockton, uh, who uh, Stockman, that is a retired Air Force colonel uh, who has extensive cost estimating and control expertise at the OSD level. And uh, besides including myself also, uh, it included uh, Mr. Brian Rutledge. I know many of us know Brian, uh, um, who was uh, retired from the Air Force Civil Service. Uh, in his last job, he was the deputy PO for fighters and bombers. Um, you know, in, in the paper, uh, Shaq shared um, shared you know a kind of a kind of collection of issues that uh, we were talking before we started about. These are all very similar experiences. I think that many of us saw as we navigated our way and as as Waldos continues to navigate his way through the you know the acquisition process uh, that journey and through our careers. But I think uh, what's significant is seeing that these are shared challenges, they're common pitfalls, and sometimes they're copy or repeated uh, solutions, or maybe it's perhaps more accurately uh, stated attempts to resolve problems. Uh, uh, collectively, this has been very enlightening. Um, so I really encourage the reading of the paper <laughs> for sure. Um, and I would say that there's two really big takeaways and maybe not actually uh, termed in this way, but one is to learn the rules of the road. Um, you know, the rules got there for a reason and we need to understand those reasons and so forth. Or because as we would one of the findings that we found as a DAI team is that, you know, 
acquisition is all about managing. Uh, the name of the game is managing risk, risk management. And so if you don't understand the rules, it's very difficult, almost impossible to, to manage your risk against that, to know when you can deviate, when you can waiver, when you can change the rules. And so that's, a, I think, a really relevant point. And then I think the other big takeaway, uh, as Shaq already highlighted, too, is that's communicate, communicate, communicate. Pretty horsey-ducky message, but I think that's, uh, that's it, is communicate, communicate. So with that, thanks again, and I look forward to the discussion this afternoon. Thanks. Well, Dwyer, thank you very much for that. And uh, Waldo, once again, thanks very much for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to be here. So over to you on your comments and perspectives uh, up front. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be a part of this panel. It's good to see some good acquisition friends out there. And I was just talking to Shaq a little bit earlier. It's almost like he wrote this paper for most of the programs we execute in the uh, Rapid Capabilities Office. And I'll touch on the B21 and how we're playing that out with respect to his, his observations in that paper. Before I do that, let me just touch on some of the uh, secret sauce for the RCO. And then let me get into some myth busting that I think most folks out there have wrong. So the secret sauce really is uh, culture in the program offices, empowered teams. It looks very similar, but not identical to what you'd typically see at, uh, you know, like Lockheed Skunk Works back in the days when Kelly Johnson was running the place. He had a number of rules that he would commit to, but it was all about empowering the people and getting, a, a, I'll say, a melting pot of experts together and let them just go work it. And the melting pot I have is not only program managers, but contracting officers, uh, financial managers, uh, engineering, et cetera. It makes up that melting pot and the teams really do a good job in the execution side. A little bit of myth busting. Everybody seems to think the RCO speeds because we have um, exception to statute and exception to policy, and that is completely wrong. We follow all laws. And for the most part, we follow all of the policies. Now I'll get on the one that uh, we made sure that we read closely. If I mentioned DOD 5000, that is the Defense Acquisition Bible. And if you take a look at inside there, and I don't recommend you do that, it's a very long read, you would find in the very beginning, there's a tailoring and streamlining section that focuses on how one would get through this you know, lethargic and bureaucratic system in a manner that makes sense. And the nation has done that many a times. Defense Department knows how to do that. And so what we ended up doing is using that section and we codified it in our charter. And in that charter, it's got uh, calls out the board of directors. And from the board of directors you see in there, it's you know essentially a number of folks. We've just added a recent one because the US Space Force standing up, but it's uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for ANS, RE, Secretary of the Air Force, the two chiefs, so Chief Staff of the Air Force, now the Chief of Space Operations. And right now, since we only have one SAE, it's the uh, SAF AQ. And when uh, the Department of the Air Force stands up, the, uh, the second Space Force SAE will include that on our board. Notice we got some high-powered Title 10 authorities governing and overseeing our activities. And so from my perspective, that's how we do business. And that board, along with all the folks I deal with in that tailored and streamlined fashion, is all about how we execute programs. Now, little bit on B21. And again, if, if you were to write a paper about how we're executing that program, Shaq did it. And it's amazing how much we are following that piece because it makes logical sense. And so we've been uh, in development or 
what they call a engineering manufacturing development for about five years now. And in this uh, current budget that was submitted and it hasn't been uh, passed in law yet, there's a lot of conversations, hopefully closed out. Uh, you'll start to see where we put in for advanced procurement. That means we are getting ready to get past the milestone. See, we're in that crossroad that Shaq pointed out. And so the budget, our budget's not classified, it's unclassified. Everybody can see it. And they'll see that advanced procurement in there. And that doesn't mean that when we start production that we're gonna do something that doesn't make sense. We're gonna follow the logical uh, sequence that, that Shaq called out in his paper. Not because we read his paper just recently, that's the plan we've been under. And our acquisition strategy and program baseline is, I'll say the, the, the best part of that is all about what Shaq calls out in the paper. So um, in fact, the observations weren't just from others out there, but think about it, even on the Hill. So um, we had a very um, senior uh, Hask chairman, uh, Rep Smith, that talked about an update we gave him recently. And he talked about when he tweeted, um, and I'll just use his words, he's cautiously optimistic in public about how we're on time on budget and making it work in a very intelligent way. Those are his words after we briefed him. And so you start to get a sense, maybe there's something there then. And that's what others are recognizing. And so the, the rules of thumb that Chuck pointed out, we live every single day. And the biggest one is active contract management. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not close with our industry partner, we are. And in order to do active contract management, you better be close with your partner, especially the industry partner and all of the subs are associated with that. Um, we closed out all our CDR actions over two years ago, and we're in a very, very mature phase of closing out development and moving on to flight test and getting through that to inform how we're gonna go into production. And we haven't waited. Shaq and I went to test pilot school together. So, you know, good, bad, or different. I got some test qualities in me and I'm gonna bring that to uh, the program office. And we've been doing risk reduction using other, I've mentioned this in the, uh, in the press, uh, I'd say about a few months ago, but we've been using test assets, not bombers, to do a lot of risk reduction on the avionics. And that's gone a long way because we're using the actual software that we're going to put on the bomb. So I'm reducing not only the software risk, but also the integrated components that will go on that system and getting a sense, not in simulation, but in flight test. And that's informing how we're making those changes and how we're updating the software. So we're in a very good place to start um, our production, getting past Milestone C. In fact, I'll share this with you. We actually did a, uh, I'll say a very innovative way of Milestone C. Instead of having like the big, big bang where you come in for a big day and do Milestone C like all defense programs, we actually put it in a phased approach. So if we went in and we had an entrance and exit criteria associated with each phase. And we're gonna phase it through the milestone C, so we're not slowing the program down, but at the same time, managing the risk that Dwyer talked about in a fashion that allows our senior leadership, my board, to make a decision on how we move forward with full rate production. So thanks again for the opportunity to be a part of this panel. I look forward to the questions. Hopefully they're not too hard. Thanks again, Dave. Yeah. Over. No, thanks very much, uh, uh, Waldo. I was gonna, I was going to kick off with one about, okay, how much of this stuff has been applied to the B-21 program, and you already answered that one. So we'll just jump right in here to some of the other issues that uh, Shaq raised in the uh, paper. 
Um, now, milestone C is traditionally assessed whether software is mature as if it was a fixed entity. Does this need to change in a world where software needs to be far more dynamic uh, to meet the rapidly evolving circumstances? And how do we assess this key capability different than say a physical structure? Anybody on the panel? I could start with a real world example of what we're doing. Uh, you've heard terms out there used very loosely, this thing called DevOps. So development and ops coming together. Um, I'll share this with you. Uh, I mentioned the avionics testing we're doing currently with the software. And we learned early on, we started doing DevOps before it became a term. And what was happening was uh, we have, in associated with our program office, um, three or four now operators from uh, Global Strike Command that actually participate in the program office and go through these operators in the loop and getting a feel for not just the flying qualities portion, but also how would one do an integrated approach? And that's working quite well. So from the standpoint of software, not only are we exercising in the normal software uh, integration labs that you typically have on a program, but also taking it to flight test and having the users play with it, as opposed to waiting until we're done with developmental test and heaving it over the partition to operational test and hope we got it right. And we're doing that early in the phases. We've been doing that for you know, over three years. And so the goal here is, how do I actually adjust my software so it doesn't take 24 months, but maybe 24 days or less, 24 minutes to make changes that make sense from something that's considered a deficiency and you want to get it fixed in a time minute. We've actually done that in real life in some of the software integration labs we've got going today. Now, you, you know this because we've talked about it. The B21 is not just about getting the software to, to do this thing called DevOps. It's also, we started from the beginning with some open architecture thoughts. We uh, had a, um, a set of standards that were created in the RCO, mostly to kind of get our family of systems so they could actually start to break down some of the highly proprietary stovepipes and software and share information at machine speeds. And the two standards are the Universal Communication Initiative, UCI, and then the Open Mission Systems, OMS. Think, think from the standpoint of what you'd see typically in the internet today is, how do you have a messaging standard that allows people to actually digest your data, crunch on it and share it back, or vice versa? You do it to theirs and back. And what we found was we've got a consortium of um, industry partners to come together and figure out how to do the standards at the same time work across their proprietary bounds in a manner that allows us to do machine-to-machine -machine sharing of military information. Over. You know, that's very good, Waldo. Appreciate that. Um, uh, Shaq or uh, Dwyer, any uh, additional commentary? Uh, the only thing I would add is that um, uh, one must always be careful and prepared for what happens when you actually install it in the jet and go fly it. Uh, as we've seen on other, other programs that took advantage of uh, surrogate platforms to do software work and integration and whatnot, that worked fine. But when it was put on the actual test aircraft, something about the installation, something about the way the software worked within the bus structure uh, created problems. Uh, case in point, F-22, which, which used all of those integration laboratories and airborne test beds, uh, but then uh, because of the architecture they were using within the software, 
uh, wound up with these avionics resets that took uh, extended periods of time to reboot the entire avionics system during test missions. Uh, so that's something that um, you might be able to avoid, but the important thing I think is recognizing that those things happen and that they do affect the efficiency of flight test. And as you now progress into your flight test program and you, you've designed that program with a certain number of test vehicles, which we may talk about later, uh, that may get extended. And the, the one common thing about all these programs is that even though development takes longer and longer and longer and flight tests get started later and later, Milestone C almost never changes. So you wind up with a very compressed flight test program, which puts additional pressure on flight tests to, uh, to determine whether the baby is ugly or not. And that's, uh, that's something that can rear its head in software, over. Um, thanks, Shaq. Um, to carry on with you, you pointed out in your report that most of the programs you highlighted began before many of the most recent acquisition reform efforts took effect. Um, most specifically, the Weapon System Acquisition Reform Act of 2009 and the Better Buying Power Initiatives of the 2010s. How did these efforts change the equation? What's better, what's worse? Well, Wasara brought along uh, some reorganization with OSD, brought along CAPE, uh, brought along some uh, some changes in the way that we certify programs at milestones A and B. Uh, better buying power uh, originally really focused on the the area of um, of uh, services acquisition, but with a broader application, uh, brought in uh, some emphasis on a professional workforce, emphasis on competition and whatnot. Uh, it also had a, an unintended consequence. Uh, uh, Better buying power really had a message of pick the right kind of contract for whatever it is you're doing. Uh, somehow that got kind of muddled up around KC46 time into what became low price technical acceptable contracting. And uh, that became a um, sort of a pylon since KC46 was successful with it. Uh, everybody else went that way and it wasn't always the right contracting approach to take for the um, the programs were, that were being acquired. Uh, subsequent to those, uh, we, we've seen uh, middle tier acquisition and the rise of the uh, other transaction authority. And uh, I would just point out uh, one to support Waldo's comment about tailoring. Uh, tailoring is available through the traditional acquisition approach. It's just not pursued very often. Uh, and what's so important about these, uh, these methods of um, streamlining acquisition is how they're applied and to what they're applied because they don't apply to everything. They don't apply in every case. And it's possible to pick a program and make it a, uh, uh, a test case for something like uh, section 804 mid-tier acquisition when in fact, uh, that's just not the right thing for it to be. And that we have cases of that today, uh, which eventually, and unfortunately, it takes a few years to figure out that an approach you've taken is not really a good approach. We're going to find out those programs aren't working very well through Section 804 and have to revert to something else, which will obviously um, add to cost and schedule. Okay, thanks very much for that. Let's talk about trust a bit. One of the 
biggest sections of the report focus on this notion between uh, or trust between government actors, the primes, and the subs. Uh, so, Shaq and Dwyer, could you speak to us about this process from a historic perspective? Uh, what worked and what didn't in driving uh, more trust? And Waldo, where do we stand on this today? You touched upon it a little bit. Um, are, are there practices that you see in place today that, that really help to engender uh, trust? Uh, I'll mention one that um, I was directly involved in, and this was uh, F-22. Uh, early in F-22 EMD, uh, it was sort of the forerunner of uh, integrated product teams. And for the first few years of F-22 EMD, we had a, a very close relationship with the contractor through the IPTs. And, and I thought we were executing very, very well. There were other factors about F-22 that, uh, that kept that from being realized in, in the long term, but that relationship was very good. Uh, 10 years later, I returned to the program, and by now we, we had gone through the, um, the, the realization that the, the contractor should be the more than just the integrating contractor. You needed to be responsible for the entire program. And as a result, uh, the government was pretty much hands-off in how the contractor was doing business. And the, the government lost a lot of insight through that. Uh, that eventually developed into an us versus them mentality that uh, that had a direct effect, direct effect on the end of EMD. Uh, so uh, we have to be careful about how we how we treat things as time passes. We can start with a lot of enthusiasm and then find ourselves being misdirected by changes in funding, changes in political environment, and uh, from a programmatic perspective, that's just not healthy. Dwyer, how about you? Well, I would just share, and, and it's not one of the programs that we uh, we looked at in the case, but it just, from my own personal experience, and that's NPR tip and E10, E10 being a canceled program, right? But all green, but canceled for other reasons. But um, but one of the things that struck me and that, you know, this is the early 2000 timeframe, right? Um, we really got into to this position of having integrated uh, um, almost live uh, documentation of, of a risk of things going south. And so that at the IPT level, IPT level, Shaq just mentioned the IPT approaches that we used, you know, at the lowest levels, they were sharing data. It was, it was visible to the people in the program office. It was visible on the contract team. And that allowed an all hands on deck approach to, to uh, problem solving and really getting after it and understanding early and upfront when there were challenges. And that, that goes to that transparency. Uh, so I think that there's uh, that, that's some of the, uh, the tools that we've used and sometimes uh, perhaps we've, we have forgotten there back to my kind of uh, comment on the rules to the road is understanding those lessons and going back and looking at them uh, and, and how, how we can apply those today, maybe in a new innovative way, but still uh, getting at after that uh, communication over. Very good. Waldo, you have anything else to add uh, to this uh, topic? Yeah, I would say uh, the trust factor that was called out in here is actually very critical, not only from the standpoint of working well with industry, but it also gets at the heart of poor communications and misunderstandings when executing the, the actual contract. 
So from my perspective, again, uh, this is just using some of the techniques we employed. It's not about just talking to the program manager from the industry partner's point of view. It's usually the senior leadership, whether it's a sector vice president or the CEO. And for the B21 and a handful of other programs that I'm executing to, I at least try to get a every other month meeting with the CEO or the sector vice president to have a conversation in a manner that gets at this particular issue of trust. And here's, here's where I go. This is not, I always tell my team this and I tell the industry team this. This is not, not about you coming in to brief me or the CEO. Because if we wanted a briefing or update, we'd get that any day of the week. This is about you presenting your program to us, how you're solving the issues, and how we can help you become successful. What do we need to do help? And so in my role as the PEO, there's some things I can do. I have authorities that allow me to do certain things. And certainly the CEO or sector vice president has some tools they can use in resourcing and such that actually makes the program successful. When we combine those forces at the trust level you're talking about, it's amazing how well you can execute the program. Over. Uh, very good. Um, another point that I know folks are interested in is that uh, the report mentioned that classification uh, led to a breakdown in effective oversight for a program like the A12. Yet today, keeping programs classified seems to yield uh, healthy programs, uh, or at least that's what the oversight folks on the Hill are reporting. Um, Waldo, could you speak to these variables? Um, what are you doing now that didn't occur back in the days of the A12? Okay, well, let me start with the bomber. First and foremost, it's not a classified program. It has classified attributes. The budget is actually unclassified. Uh, the whole world knows we're building it. Uh, what they don't know is all the details that we want to hold near and dear from a classified point of view. And that's going to continue. So I always bring it up when people talk about classifications and helpful or not helpful is it's a balance. Yeah, and so at some point, you've got to balance how much you want to be transparent, not just with the American people or the, the Hill or within the Department of Defense, but also transparent with your adversary. Because the more you are transparent, the more they're going to learn and try to counter what you're doing. So the balance is how much should you publicly talk about and share with everybody as opposed to what's truly classified. You know this, there's classified details and programs and then there's operational security, things that you shouldn't naturally talk about. And so the idea here, every single day, certainly from my point of view, I'm doing that balance across my entire portfolio, not just the bomber. Hopefully that helped, over. No, very good. Um, I tell you what, let me ask one more, uh, and then we'll open it up to the crowd or the audience for their uh, questions. Um, the report clearly suggests that firm fixed price contracts are far from silver bullets for netting healthy programs. Um, Shaq, could you talk to some of the lessons learned here and where do you see this type uh, of uh, contract as being a part of the solution? Uh, and otherwise, where will it likely prompt issues? Well, I think what we've discovered is that um, while firm fixed price has some definite benefits from the government perspective for cost control, a la the, um, the cost overruns on KC-46, it at the same time uh, can be very frustrating for the government. Uh, when you're working under a fixed price contract, the the 
sharing of information is controlled by what is contractually obligated to be shared. A reduced cedral list, for instance, uh, a contractor that is trying to solve problems internally to save the, the money that they're putting into it themselves to increase their margin on the contract. And that's where uh, communication breakdown uh, can be a severe problem. Uh, this occurred on KC-46. Uh, I know there was a significant amount of frustration on the part of the program office at not having the insight that they would like to have into what was going on at the program. And the, the contractor trying to solve problems with uh, software that eventually required a hardware change. And uh, while, while this was a bonanza from a, a cost-saving perspective, from the government's perspective, it had direct implications on the fielding of the aircraft because the aircraft wasn't ready to go when it was supposed to be ready to go. And even then, portions of the aircraft were not mission capable to serve the, the customer base that it was supposed to serve. So fixed price uh, has its place. Uh, it, it's something that um, uh, is fairly popular these days and industry even goes for it. But we've got to remember that uh, industry is going to price fixed price to cover their risk. Back to, to Dwyer's point on risk management. They're going to cover the risk in their price. So you may wind up with a higher price out of a fixed price contract than you would from a cost reimbursable contract if you manage the cost reimbursable contract correctly. Over. Okay. Anyone else care to comment? All right. Um, there, there's a lot to discuss here. <clears throat> and so what I'd like to do is move on to audience uh, questions. Um, and for those of you who have, have been on these before, please uh, use the raise hand function on the uh, app. Uh, and then uh, if you're new to the crowd, introduce yourself and where you're from. So with that, let's jump right into audience questions and start with uh, Mr. John Turpak. Go ahead, John. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, in the context of uh, General Brown's Accelerate, Change, or Lose, uh, this really for General Shackelford uh, and uh, Dr. Roper's ideas about uh, speeding things up with digital transformation, uh, is the milestone system as it's currently structured the right way to be doing it? Or, or as Mr. Walden said, should we be breaking it up into more phases? What, what could be a more efficient way to go about this? Hmm. Um, interesting question. Uh, I, I would go so far as to say that um, the, the milestone system is okay, but we need to be able to tailor the milestone system to deal with uh, the challenges that a particular program is facing. Uh, things like uh, spreading out a uh, milestone event to, to multiple um, mini milestones uh, is, is one solution that, that, that's commonly taken with that. Uh, but, but again, that the significance of the milestone events is that it, it gets the detail of what's going on in the program up to the very top decision makers so that they get insight into, say, the overall status of the program. And we've got to be careful to um, keep them informed. You know, one of the reasons that um, that uh, the RCO's process works so well is because they've got direct access to the key decision makers. And the key decision makers are actually part of the audience for this paper, as well as, as what we're talking about right here, because they're the ones that control 
things like funding, um, things like the, the expectations. Uh, and we got to remember that we always set expectations for a program well early before we really, really understand what the risks are and how we're going to deal with them. So having that, that kind of communication opportunity at these major milestones with the key decision makers allows us to, to drop into people that uh, can't spend every day working the program, but understand the significance of making these major muscle movements, say from development into production, over. Thank you. Just to follow up then, um, did, in your research and looking at all these programs, were there any consistent uh, early warning signs that, that uh, decision makers should be looking out for that, uh, that tells you, well, wait a minute, we're, we're headed into problems here. Is there anything consistent among the programs that uh, uh, should be codified as a, this is a red flag, let's, let's go off on, a, on an off-ramp here and figure it out? I wouldn't call anything out in particular other than the, the importance of communication. Uh, Dwyer made this point earlier, but um, uh, communication is such a key here and communication up the chain. So right now we have pushed a great deal of the responsibility and accountability down in the chain, down to the, the PEO level or even to the uh, program manager level. Uh, in some cases that's led to some, uh, some shenanigans uh, but, but in general, the information still needs to flow back up so that these, these decision makers that do control at the very top level the direction the program is going uh, so that they're aware of things and have an understanding of uh, the impact of the decisions that they make. Over. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's uh, hear from Gerald Janicki. Gerald? Yeah, hi, I'm Gerald Janicki. I'm the uh, Vice President of Strategy here at Mega Defense. And my question is, there's lots of new platforms being developed or being procured under OTAs. Where do you see any of the shortfalls above the OTA versus the, uh, the you know, the, the common critical development through using standard 5001 uh, acquisition? I know OTAs are part of the acquisition process, but it just seems there's not as much transparency or there's not as much... Uh, communication on some of the OTAs that I support. Yeah, I, I would suggest uh, being a bit careful with OTAs as well as with mid-tier acquisition. A, a lot of these newer strategies for dealing with acquisition are really focused on prototypes. Uh, OTAs, in fact, in general, are intended to be uh, ways to get a prototype moving. Uh, now, a, a prototype's a good idea to understand where technology is going and what the maturity of technology is, but prototypes don't always lead you to faster. Uh, I'm familiar with one program in a portfolio that I work with where uh, there's a prototype activity that's scheduled to last five years. They had to change the definition of the prototype to make it work within five years. And then there's a follow-on five-year production process. So what could have been about a six or seven year program using traditional acquisition uh, winds up taking at least 10. Now, good news, I suppose, is you can get the OTA going without the help of the, uh, the JSIDS process and you can, can move things along much quicker in that partnership with, uh, with industry. 
But uh, once again, it's, it's the how you apply the tool that matters here. Um, I would be interested in what Waldo has to say. He's probably dealt with a few OTAs. Yeah, so um, I was gonna I was gonna comment on that. Um, the RCO's history, until recently, we've never used an OTA. We've stuck to the traditional cost plus fixed price where it makes sense. It is a tool, and if the tool makes sense, use it. If the tool is just something that you want to go use, but you don't understand how it's uh, used or the purposes by which you want to use it, then you're probably in the wrong business. So the goal here is use the right tool. If it does help you go faster, great. But I think the Shaq's point is most of the time it doesn't help you go faster. It's really for a demo or a prototype. And that's where the best use is. And that's what we're using it for. The goal here is we use the right tool for the program. And everybody seems to think if I could just get the cookie cutter approach for all successful programs, we're good to go. That's not how this works. You actually have to be mindful of what program you're executing and how you want to go out doing, including the contract strategy. Over. Yeah, and if, if, if I could, I just wanted to add one additional thought. Gerald, I think you have your, you, you, I think you have your finger on it too, is that, you know, with the OTA, because of the way they're executed and, and at what level and the, the definition behind it, it's even harder to be, I, I would argue, more difficult, more challenging to be transparent and to get the communication up with understanding and thus to continue advocacy by the Hill, by your own services and so forth. So I, the OTA used correctly, as Waldo just said, with prototyping and so forth, great tool, but be careful to run a whole program on an OTA because in the end you have to maintain advocacy over. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, that was excellent. You know, we're working three different OTAs on three different services right now. They're all about fly before or drive before you buy. But again, I just don't see how much, how this could improve if you're not doing all your full testing yet, you know, before you get to the prototypes, you know, we're prototyping things way before we get through full qualification testing. So, all right, thank you very much. Okay, let's turn to uh, Douglas uh, Greenlaw. Doug? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, thank you, uh, Dave, and thanks for the whole team. What, a, what an excellent presentation. Uh, my name is Doug Greenlaw. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer in a JADC2 oriented company called Research Innovations Incorporated. Uh, for Mr. Walden, your approach towards DevOps and standards suggests RCO could play a key role in future Air Force and Joint C2 systems, where software has to interface across a variety of legacy and future systems, but also keep pace with both our technology development and accelerating adversary capabilities. I noted the move of ABMS to RCO. Is RCO interested in increasing its role in JADC2? Absolutely. I think we're already there. Um... Remember, JADC2 is the concept by which I think all the services figure out how we can share data at the same level of sharing we enjoy today on a, using a 21st century commercial industry technology-based internet. And so how do we do that And understanding our data, use the infrastructure that exists today and leverage that to share our data? That means we have to think about the data we have and what we want to share that enhances our command control or battle management. And so the, uh, I think the biggest um, challenge is one, identifying the data you want to share 
in a manner that allows us to do a 21st century battle management or command control infrastructure that is not susceptible to our adversaries. And today, you know this, the Air Operations Center, I'll just pick on that one, is starting the 20th century. It's fairly dated. It uses old techniques on how to do software. Question is, can I just convert that? Well, you could try to convert it, but again, converting one thing is not the answer. And so from my perspective, we've known this for quite some time and some of the efforts we had early on, which I believe are foundational to ABMS today, were things called Common Mission Control Center or CMCC. And then uh, General Raymond, who was Air Force Space Command commander at the time, asked me, because he was familiar with CMCC, he says, could you do that for space? And that became the space version of CMCC. And the answer is yes. And so the idea here is use an industry consortium to break down their proprietary stranglehold, figure out what data you want to share, because they actually help create the data. And it's amazing how well not only we can work with them, but they can work together. Given the right environment, it's incredible how one can share data at machine to machine speeds, of which I believe is getting after the, co the concept called JADC2 and meeting the requirements of ABMS today. And just quickly on ABMS, there are two broad components of ABMS. First one is we need a digital infrastructure that allows us to, to share data that we enjoy personally every day when we go log on the internet. And at the same time, we've got to figure out what capabilities we want to put in there, whether it's understanding what data you want to share or adding what's called capability releases now. The first one has been out in the press, and that's modifying a KC-46 to allow sharing of information. And everybody thought it was, well, it's got to be tactical air sharing. The answer is no, that's one piece. That's a tactical edge with TAC air sharing information. And the other parts is it's the same information you'd want to share with operational or in this case, strategic customers. And so it's all the same data. Why wouldn't you give access to all of the users, tactical, operational, and strategic near simultaneous? Over. Thank you, sir. Good answer, great. Um, yeah, Waldo, actually, I was gonna ask you a question uh, sent in by Ted Bowles, but uh, you just answered it with regard to uh, best practices in uh, playing and uh, developing a program like uh, ABMS. So. Let me shift to one from Chad uh, Millette, uh, who writes, I appreciate Mr. Walden's characterization that the RCO does not have additional authorities or get out of jail free cards from other program offices. However, one of the key attributes that I believe leads to the success of RCO and other rapid delivery organizations like Big Safari that is different from standard program offices is that they hand select their personnel. Should we continue to try to scale the things that make these rapid organizations operate so well to standard program offices, be more deliberate in selecting all program office personnel? Well, let me, uh, let me try to answer it this way. I'm very familiar with Big Safari when I was running AQI in the days that I think Shaq was the mill dep. But in, in general terms, I think it is not just about hiring good people. That's what, you know, most of the acquisition folks, certainly in the Department of the Air Force are all trained. They all know what they're doing. The issue I see in the secret sauce is you need to have that culture throughout all layers, not just at the lower layer. And so I haven't, and I share this at Defense Acquisition University when they asked me to come over and talk. I can't remember the last time a program manager or a contracting officer came into me saying, hey boss, I got an epiphany. I want to, I want to figure out how we slow down the program and cost the taxpayer money. That's not typical. 
What happens is through the, the uh, lethargic bureaucratic processes is when all of that starts to change to a point where you don't even recognize the program that the program manager and the contracting officer put together. So the goal here is figure out, like the tools, figure out the right mix of folks that you need in this melting pot to run the programs and, and empower them and support them in a manner that allows us to all succeed. Hopefully that answered the question. Over. Okay, very good. Um, here's another one. Uh, as speaking of uh, slow, lethargic bureaucratic processes, given the delayed status of the NDAA and the perennial nature of continuing resolutions, let's uh, uh, talk about funding instability. If you had five minutes with members of Congress, what would you tell them about the need to keep money predictable and steady? Uh, and what's the penalty of failing to do this? I mean, all we have to do is look at some of the recent marks against the F-35. Congress is a big fan of signaling displeasure by cutting funds, but doesn't that exacerbate the issue at times? Anybody? Yeah, I'll pile on then you guys follow. So uh, the answer is absolutely yes. And anytime I have an opportunity on the Hill to talk about it, I put it in terms of, if you want to damage a program or make it unsuccessful, do two things create requirements and funding instability. The moment you do that, one or both, you're going to break the program and we're not delivering anything. So I will always tell them, at least from the funding perspective, when we're on the Hill, please make that stable. That's okay for them to ask us to come in and share things. And it's okay for them to mark us because they don't believe the numbers we've given them. And that's, that to me is the right way to actually have a conversation to share what we're really doing. So that level of communication, my, my book seems to be reasonable and logical. The same holds on the requirements side. If the requirements are changing, whether it's generated by the Defense Department or the Hill, that drives instability in the program to where we may not have the money to cover it. And I still see that today. Over. I would just add one thing too about the requirements and, uh, and, funding, and, then, and the funding stability flows from it in my mind. And that is to be realistic up front. You know, um, Waldo gave a great example on the whole DevOps when he talked about, you know, he, he turned it, you know, 24 hours, 24 days, 24 hours, 24 minutes, you know, and uh, trying to speed that. Well, that also points to, you know, smaller slices of the requirement, more incremental and so I think we have to be more realistic and not go in necessarily and ask for this huge burn rate that we know that we probably can because we want to try to get it all. So I, it, again, that goes back to a transparent dialogue and, and trusted discussion with the folks on the Hill over and with the man with the Magicoms, frankly, as well. Over. Jack. Yep. Yeah, and there's also a, a, a bit of a, um, a circular argument that goes on here because the the evidence of a um, uh, a well running program is is good execution, uh, but if you go in and perturb the execution by say uh, changing the funding line every year, uh, you've now taken a contractor who's put together a program based on a certain expectation that's built up a workforce in a certain way has applied that, that uh, workforce to do some work breakdown structure activity. And that has to be replanned every time the funding changes. 
to the point that they often take people and uh, take them off of your program and put them onto their overhead system or let them go. Uh, so that that has no better effect than keeping things stable. Most likely it results in uh, time added and time added equals cost added. Over. Okay, well, everyone, we've uh, unfortunately come to the end of Mitchell Institute's rollout of our newest forum paper from EMD to Milestone C and beyond. And uh, I'd like to, uh, to say to Shaq and uh, Dwyer and uh, Waldo, uh, lots of thanks for sharing your insights into these critical issues. Uh, and all of you out there, please look for this report on our webpage. From all of us at Mitchell Institute, uh, wish you all have a great aerospace power kind of day out here. Thanks, Dave.